Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy this message, Keep the Faith, by Elder Alan Holcomb. For any further information about this service or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. Bless each one of you in Jesus' name. Just receive it. Just receive a blessing this morning. Uh, Several weeks ago, there was a theme that came up in our small groups, which was that in this narrative of God and his eternal plan, he's chosen some very messed up and uh, flawed people. (laughs) And of course, he didn't want to keep them flawed. Uh, but it was like it was baked in or uh, accounted for that these people had all of this screwed up stuff in their life. And that's one thing that I love about the scriptures is we don't read about all these perfect people, you know, and we're just supposed to emulate them. And I think that's a good apologetic that the, the, the scriptures we're reading, they We can trust them because here we see all this dirty laundry hanging out. You know, we we look at that and we see that. And um, we see that uh, God used all of that. And we see that there was atonement for that. In each case, for even leaders, for even those that were responsible and who failed miserably, um, God used them in a mighty way. And despite all the flaws, there's characters in the Bible that we, we do want to emulate and we are impressed with. In my case, it's uh, Samuel. I mean, he came back from the dead <laughs> and uh, was shown in a vision to uh, Saul the king. And it's, it's like that really baked his noodle, you know, see, <laughs> seeing the prophet come back. And I mean, that's pretty powerful. There's Elijah and Elisha. <sighs> but then there's characters that we feel an affinity to or a commonness with. And for me, it's always been uh, Timothy. Um, He came from a believing heritage. Uh, His grandmother, Lois, uh, was a believer and may have even been a leader in the church in Ephesus. And his mother, Eonice, I think is how you say it, she was also a strong believer, but uh, sewed into this young man, Timothy, the word of God. Uh, She was a believer. His his dad was a a Greek, you know, in this time, ever since Alexander the Great came through, there was Greek spoken and Hellenistic culture all through. So not uncommon to see a Jew married to a Greek, you know, mixed families like this. Uh, But God provided for Timothy, probably the best mentor available in that time in Paul. And uh, the gifting God called Timothy into was that of a teacher. So, same here. I also had believing parents. My, my dad had a very strong influence on my life in the, the following of the voice of the Spirit. Because the Lord did some miraculous things when he was a child. And learned how to hear the voice of the Spirit since he was like eight years old. And my mother was, uh, you know, more the analytic Bible studier and, and dig in and, and research and all this. So all of that I can credit to her uh, for wanting to know the actual information and the knowledge of the word as she has stacks and stacks of Bible studies that she's done through the years, you know, Beth Moore and, you know, all the women's studies. She's been to all the... Conferences just loves just to eat up all those studies, but more in an inductive way. So each one of them had their contribution, you might say. And so it was the same with Timothy. And then Paul takes him under his wing. And even his mentor, Paul, knew that Timothy was destined for more. And that's a good lesson for all of us right now. You have an identity. I have an identity before the Lord. But that's not it. That's, that's not your cap. That's there right. is something more. Paul saw that in Timothy. 
And Jesus, the Holy Spirit, sees that in each one of you. Whatever identity has been spoken over to you in your lifetime, that's not it. There are levels to the identity that are yet to be worked out in your life. How many believe that? And and that was a reality for Timothy. We see eventually he became uh, one of the teaching apostles in Ephesus. Uh, But... I think it's in 1 Corinthians 16 we see that there could have been a little bit uh, reservedness. You know, Paul spoke to him, encouraged him, and being timid. And obviously, I'm not as timid as I used to be, but I I am a very introverted person. It was hard for me to get up and, and teach, and especially the leadership role. I've had leaders underneath me fall away from the Lord and and leave on all that, and it just crushed me, and all of those things. And Timothy kind of had the same experience when you read the first letter to Timothy. You see Paul kind of taking up the reins and leadership and saying, through pen and paper, boy, <laughs> I'm going to show you how to take up leadership here. And he began to address all the, 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 the hypocrisy, the uh, apostasy, false teaching that was taking place. And uh, you, you kind of get this sense that Timothy felt a little bit overwhelmed with all that. He just wanted to teach. just wanted to, you know, share and everybody accept what he was teaching. But that's not how it went down, you know. He had all these different Greek ideas kind of injecting themselves into the church there, and he felt a little bit overwhelmed. So Paul's model of mentorship was not just instructions or a manual of church doctrine. Here, read this, read this book, take my class, answer the questions. But many times by example in the things that he endured and the trials he faced. He led by example of one being faithful to Christ. And we're going to be in the second letter to Timothy this morning in chapter 4, where Paul is exhorting Timothy to continue in his gifts, but also follow his example in endurance from a place of experience. So if you have your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 2. He says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. In other words, do the thing I'm doing right now by writing you. I'm exhorting you. I'm rebuking. I'm teaching. I'm doing all this stuff. Emulate all that stuff. Keep the course. Keep in the way that you've watched me in my leadership. Keep keep doing that. And then in verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Interesting. His calling was a teacher. But he's already told him to preach the word and now do the work of an evangelist. So he's like taking this kid and stretching stretching him like a rubber band, you know. I want the Holy Spirit to work on you and expand your giftings into other areas. And then fulfill your ministry. So keep on, keep it on. Then as we continue in the chapter, Paul indicates a sense that his time is almost up. Um, Timothy probably didn't uh, take that too, too well, but if I were to ask you, would you like to know exactly when your time is up? How would you respond? For some of us, I think that's kind of a terrifying thing. As we'll read here in a second, Paul felt like, my, this is it, this might my time's almost up. And that, I think for all of us, would be a sober revelation. If the Holy Spirit were to reveal to you, this is it, your time's up. That's a sobering thing. It's a little bit terrifying and sobering. Because all that we've done in our lifetime would now have a very special focus, wouldn't it? Am I prepared? Am I ready? And Paul says in verse 6, For I am 
already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. So whether it was the circumstances around him, I'm sure that was pretty evident. Uh, He's writing this from prison. Uh, Obviously, he's not very well liked in that region. Uh, Or it could have been a special revelation. I've heard preaching that said, you know, God told him the exact minute when he was going to pass away. It could have been a little bit of both. I'm I'm not going to speculate on that. But Paul was confident his end was drawing near. And notice that he says he's already poured out. He's already poured out, yet he's still very much alive. That's, to me, very interesting and challenging, that statement. So he's living as if he's already passed into his final glory. But let's finish his his statement here, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So three, three aspects of his journey in life that seem like they're different things, but they're actually talking about the same thing in different aspects of it. And that's what I want to discuss this morning. What does it mean to do those things? What does it mean to keep the faith? What does it mean to be able to declare, I have run the race? What does that look like? And then he continues in verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me, henceforth. In other words, from this time on, there is laid for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also all those who have loved his appearing. Now, those of you who study Paul and his writings know that he, he doesn't write things without thinking them through. Yeah, of course, all the word of God is inspired by the Spirit, but he didn't uh, neutralize the writing style of each individual person or their thinking or their culture and all that thing. All that bleeds through with Paul. Even Peter said it was hard to understand Paul. Uh, so his choice of words are very deliberate in, in the, this statement to Timothy. The three things he mentions, running a race, fighting the fight, and keeping the faith, they're not separate tasks. They're interrelated and part of one activity. So fighting the fight, a struggle which is in, he's engaged in, finishing the race, an assignment he's completing, and keeping the faith, faithfully trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus. And by knowing his end was near, we see this deep reflection, this revelation of those things that are important to measure one's success at the end of one's life. Perhaps things that are more important at the end than they were in the present. So until Christ comes again, that final day, that that day of glory that we're waiting for, mortality of this flesh, this body, and the opportunities in this age is something we have to deal with. It is going to pass away. But it's something we've become very skilled at pushing away from our mind, especially if you don't know the Lord, right? For the common humanist, Present happiness is about all that matters, right? And uh, I've even heard the statement that if one does not have a deep sense of purpose in life, that person will fill that void with pleasure, whatever is pleasurable to them. If, if there's no purpose, then that gets filled with pleasure. Does that make sense? Yes. And as we get closer to the end of this year, a fiscal year, it's like a miniature lifetime as we look into the coming year, it's, it's as if one year of life has already gone. It's an opportunity to expect something new. And the previous year becomes something that is never recaptured again. Now, please hear me out. As a believer, even our past counts. It's not in vain. But for someone who doesn't know the Lord, that's lost forever. 
even the Greek philosopher Seneca put the, this mortality this way. We are mistaken when we look forward to the fact of our death. A major portion of death has already passed. Whatever years behind us are, are already in death's hands. Does that make sense? You can't recapture them again. And we all know that physical death is the taking away of our future days of this age. That's, that's what we mean when we say death. But this statement suggests that our future days are already taken away from us one by one since yesterday, even the second ago, even the moment ago. They're gone. <clears throat> and as the saying goes, there's only two days that cannot be lived in our present existence. The day after you die and yesterday. Well, actually, the, the moment just... <laughs> <laughs> just before this one. <clears throat> and if we're tempted to think that, well, that kind of thinking is a little bit depressing or abhorrent, uh, let me take you to Psalms chapter 90 and verse 12. It says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Now, this has become something colloquial in the West for something that's fatally going to happen. Boy, his days are numbered. You know, we use that as a cliche, but that's not the biblical sense it's using here. It's actually a very positive thing to number our days. And the psalmist says, Teach us, teach us to number our days. Because it's something we don't want to do naturally, is it? We certainly don't think about it as much as we should. Teach us. It's something that needs to be learned if we are to live this life wisely and be able to say at the end of life, I have run the race. Gaining a heart of wisdom. There's an awful lot in Ecclesiastes about wisdom and stuff that's vanity. All these stuff that piles up and is nothing but vanity and wind. <clears throat> Do you believe that every biblical truth is for good? So even this verse is for my good, right? Okay, that wasn't very strong. Amen there. <laughs> Everything written in the word is for our good. Amen? Amen? Amen. <laughs> so it must be good for me to think about the shortness of time in this age in expectation of the age to come. But how is that a good thing? So each passing year, and we've, we've used this terminology a lot this year, each passing year is a dress rehearsal of the age to come. Amen? Amen? Every moment, day or year, we're given an opportunity to reveal lessons and instructions for the days to come. So in order to illustrate this, let me describe a wedding rehearsal. <clears throat> There's so many things to plan. So many things to think about, so many things that could go wrong. People stay up, light, uh, up late at night looking through catalogs, they pick patterns, they order flowers, they sort colors, they line up dates, they send out invitations, then the rehearsal itself. They practice saying their vows, they don't want to stumble, they don't want to say the wrong thing on the wedding. They practice walking down the aisle, they practice standing in just the right place. They want to make sure the actual wedding, at the actual wedding, they've done enough, enough times, they're ready. They're ready for it. What the rehearsal is to the wedding is what a passing year is to the age to come. Do you see it that way? This year, 2022, was a rehearsal for the age to come. This next year is also 
the next step in the rehearsal. So it's an opportunity to see if we are on track, if our priorities are aligned. It's not an, a negative exercise, but it's actually necessary. And as the psalmist said, it's a core to wisdom and meaningful life. So let's look again at Paul's reflection at his imminent end. And I, I want to look at two things in particular. First, the mark of a life well-lived is the perseverance and growth in faith in God. He said his faith is both finished and kept. I kept the faith. I finished the race. <clears throat> so what is the, the most meaningful measuring stick to know if we're doing this? If we're persevering and growing in our faith. Some would measure their success at their looking at their financial portfolio or a raise in their job or bank balance, my stock portfolio. We know that none of these things matter when we're on our deathbed. And the same is true for any other earthly measuring stick. In our text, how does Paul measure himself as he faces the end? These are things that will measure or treasure perhaps more at the end, as I said. What are those things that you would treasure most at the end, perhaps more than you do right now? What are those things? He uses the phrase, keep the faith. What is keeping the faith? How do I know I'm keeping the faith? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to list four marks on this. This is point one, but I'm going to give four marks of how we know we're keeping the faith. One is we're constantly keeping our attention fixed on Jesus. And this brings to mind Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. The race that's set for us. So, again, fixing unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, and he just mentioned the race as well. We have both those aspects. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. When I was youth pastoring, I, I had the youth memorize this verse. Because if, if the only scripture you could remember when you got up in the morning was Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, fixing your eyes on Jesus, you're going to do pretty well through life. If that's the only verse that comes to mind when you get up in the morning, looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. And later in the, in the chapter, he says, where is Jesus? He's seated at the right hand, Right? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So looking unto Jesus is about uh, a, an attention drawn to or a beholding of a different realm. Being captured into an eternal realm. That's what happened when we were died and sealed with Christ. Where we're not, no longer stuck in the rat race of this age. We have a higher perspective. We have heaven perspective he said keep your attention there and we can think of Colossians 3 as well it says set your mind on the things above not on the things below that whole chapter as well is on how we've been captured out of we've been rescued out of we were POWs to the enemy in this realm now we've been captured back to the kingdom that we belong to and now we can think and meditate and stay in that place. You say, well, Alan, how do you, how do, you do that? You know, a lot of my day is a lot of terrestrial, material things. Well, it's about a hard attitude. I like the expression my dad used to say, centering my heart in Christ. You know, there's this place of balance where Christ is keeping my attention despite the work of my hands Despite who I'm on the phone with, despite what conversation I'm having, he's keeping that central place in my life. So keeping the faith is not an abstract picturing or visualization of Jesus. 
We're not in a staring contest with Jesus. That's not what it means, obviously. And it, it, we don't categorize ourselves as even a people of faith, and that's what we're holding on to. It's not a religious system either. The scriptures don't talk about faith as this vague, open-ended title. And the goal isn't finding some way to boost some arbitrary power that you possess called faith. It isn't that. Faith is not something generated from your will, generated from your frontal cortex. It's not, you know, it's, there is nothing inside of me that generates faith. Where does faith come from? Faith comes by hearing. hearing. The rhema, right? The rhema of the word. And interestingly, this scripture about fixing our eyes comes right after a whole chapter of the hall of faith where you have this cloud of witnesses that heard the word of God, they believed the word of God, and they did it, right? A very simple uh, sequence of hearing God, hearing the rhema, and acting on it. Hearing it and acting on it. So the author and perfecter of our faith, he's perfecting that in us as we grow in listening. As we... so. Eyes and ears, eyes and ears are very closely related in this process, right? You can't fix with eyes unless your ear is engaged in hearing, yeah? So that's why keeping the faith is different than moral reform. Faith is always object-centered. Willpower is not enough to achieve spiritual growth. This is abiding that Jesus taught his disciples And we're often reminded that faith is not a mental ascent. See, it's not enough to want to avoid disobedience. That's not the same thing as obedience. If we want to see obedience in our life, it comes by hearing and that connection. So I trust that each one of us are growing in that hearing part. Amen? I feel feel very burdened for whole sections of the church that don't believe you can hear. Because I don't know how you can grow. I don't know how you can. I don't know how you can have faith if you're not hearing. Yeah, you're looking to the scriptures just like the Pharisees were doing. But I think Jesus rightly recognized that 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 doesn't lead to faith. Having the letter of the law doesn't lead to faith. I got to have the author of the pages. The Logos himself, I got to have the rhema make it alive to me. And I got I to have him make it very personal to me in the decisions and actions of my life. Or else I can't take the next step. And we've heard this before in different ways. But I think when you hear someone else say it, maybe it clicks something in our mind. So real biblical faith has three depths. And if you're taking notes... Uh, jot this down. So the first, first depth of faith is knowledge. The second depth is efficiency. And then the third depth is fiduciary. fiduciary. So, knowledge, so the knowledge is when you understand that Jesus is, uh, is faithful and he's verifiable He's done what he said he's done. The efficiency takes you into a realm, well, yes, I can trust him. I can trust him. I can believe him. And the fiduciary, we know in a legal sense, is where you're actually writing off your possessions, like in a, in a will or an estate, where you're actually willing those things, you're writing your possessions and your very being over to that person. Okay. So I know not, not only trust him to do that, but I wrote, write off all my rights to do otherwise, okay? And I want to illustrate this with the story of a French acrobat named Charles Blondin. If know if you've got that image there. So in the 19th century, late 19th century, this French acrobat, one of his main attractions, his main acts, was tightrope walking across Niagara Falls. 
And you could be a person that have, had read this in the paper, that this Blondin guy can tightrope across the Niagara Falls. So that's the knowledge that he can do this. Or you could be a person that actually went to the act and watch him do this. Watch him cross, watch him cross again blindfolded. One of his acts was taking somebody on his back. Then he would take an empty wheelbarrow and take it across. And then the final act was actually pushing somebody on the wheelbarrow, on the tie rope, blindfolded like this. <clears throat> so that's when you know it's... <laughs> that's when you know it's fiduciary, right? And, and there's a story about when he asked the crowd, okay, you, you have seen me push an empty wheelbarrow across this tie rope. Now, who's willing to get in? And all of a sudden, this crowd of 50, 100 went down to about three people. <laughs> nope, nope, not me. But that's when you know your faith has moved into this final depth that's fiduciary. Am I willing to get in the wheelbarrow where we're writing off any rights that says that, no, I really don't believe that he can do these things. This is a sustaining faith. When, you, when we get to that depth, that is something that sustains us. This is what Paul is talking about, keeping the faith. It's not something I generate and I try to grow myself. It's that I have arrived to such a trust level that it's so real to me that I've signed off my rights to do anything else. Right? It's a constant yieldedness. And we sing about it. And it's easy to come in a place like this and sing about it. But it's quite another thing when God tells you to do something, you know, during your, your day to day. And you have to step into that. You, all right, okay, go ahead and climb in that wheelbarrow. You know, let me take you across. <laughs> Are we seeking first the kingdom before we seek anything else? I need to hear from it, despite the consequences that it might take me into a perilous situation, because to him it's not perilous, it's not dangerous, it's not risky. For us, faith is risk, but for him it's not risky. All right, the second mark is that, uh, how do we know that we are keeping the faith? Well, we're resisting unbelief doubt and discouragement with nothing but the sword of God's promises. We recognize that it is near impossible to live in a world without experiencing seasons of doubt. Did you know that uh, uh, the believer has seasons of doubt of their belief? But even atheists have seasons of doubt for their unbelief. <laughs> C.S. Lewis said that an atheist, as an atheist, there were times when God seemed dreadfully near. I love, I love that. I love that. So there was a shaking of unbelief to his unbelief, a doubt to his doubt. I love that. But we, we face it as well. Uh, this is the primary tool of Satan in our life. And so uh, back to our text where he says fighting the fight. This is one thing that we're fighting against. We're fighting for faith and we're fighting against unbelief. And uh, he's relentless. He's relentless with this uh, uh, doubt and unbelief. See, faith begins with trust. If you undermine trust, you eliminate faith. When you stop trusting, you stop following. That is the life story of everyone who's ever fallen away from God. Their trust got undermined, so they stopped following. And many times to reach the apostate or one that has go, gone away from God is restoring trust again, restoring trust to the Father. There was something in their life that broke their trust. Right, Linda? Yeah? Restoring trust of the Father again, right? 
<clears throat> so when you stop trusting, you stop, you stop following. The Bible says that the victory that overcomes the world is your faith. So faith is actually our weapon against unbelief. <laughs> it's very hard to step in or drop off that cliff of unbelief when I've just got up off my knees with the presence of the Holy Spirit and I've heard his voice, right? It builds confidence in us. This is the victory that has overcome the world, that faith, that faith that I got on my knees, the very faithfulness of Christ being gifted to me, that that is my weapon. <clears throat> and of course, all the promises that he's already given me. You know, Before I even hear something, I've got tons of weapons against the enemy already that he's already spoken to me. So without faith, it's impossible to please God. When Jesus comes again, he's looking for faith on the earth. In a sense, that's the one work you must perform, although in reality, it's more like a rest. <laughs> so, so hear me out. Here's the one work you must do. Rest in Christ's faithfulness to be perfected in you. That's the one thing you got to do. Is nothing but rest. <laughs> So it's not an activity that I've got to generate. It's a falling into and, and getting in the wheelbarrow. It's an absolute trust. <clears throat> it's that signing over. That's the one thing I, I'm called to do is sign over every day. Everything that died, that, that's gone. It's been crucified. Nevertheless, I live. I live by what? Faith. There it is again. <laughs> All right. The third mark is not getting entangled with this age. And this comes from this same letter to Timothy in chapter 2, verse 4. I think I've got it. Noah. <clears throat> the things that are considered success in this life can actually serve as entanglements toward our calling in the kingdom. Paul uses the language of wartime. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Forgetting that we are in wartime can actually serve as an entanglement because the things that are fighting against us are ignored and we're naively th think that they could go away on their own if you don't stay engaged. Uh, those that have lived in wartime, there might be a few of us here, uh, know that sometimes you have to live without some comforts and some things get repurposed for war. In the Second World War, luxury liners were painted gray and converted into troop carriers. I think a lot of churches, we still act like cruise liners. There's only a few leaders serving the needs of the rest of the passengers aboard. And everybody else is kind of along for the ride. When it's really a battle, <laughs> a battleship where all hands on deck, yes. right? We're all in the same fight. So how about we be a battleship? This yes. is consumed as not a cruise ship, right? We've been repurposed for the kingdom. Although there's, com there's comforts and fellowship aboard. Hallelujah. We enjoy our shipmates. We all have a task. We all uh, work together in that, not just as individuals. In my individual faith, ah, so many times salvation is about how we've been incorporated into this body thing, into this community thing, into a squadron, into you know uh, th this whole army that is engaged in the fight. And so... What this looks like is some abilities that might have great use for this age get retooled in our spiritual war. Maybe you had a skill in, a, in the business world that gets retooled to further the kingdom. And nothing is normal in warfare. Nothing is normal. Everything is channeled into winning the war. That's why I like to call Saturday's war room. You, you, you call it the happy hour. I like to call it war room, but it's some of both, isn't it? It's some of both. But we are definitely 
rattling the cages of the enemy, you know. <laughs> it's like we want him to make him very uncomfortable in this area of North Richardson Hills and Fort Worth and North Texas in this country. So as far as we can chase him, we want to make him feel very uncomfortable. We want all doubt and un- unbelief out of here. In fact, right now, I just, I just speak belief over you. I speak belief and trust in the Father that he's upholding you. If you have felt in this season of your life that God isn't taking care of you or that he's abandoned you in some way or that he's not going to uh, work out your job situation or uh, there's some irrational fear that's gripping you, I just release that in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Uh, we, sp- we speak trust and belief, uh, because he, he, he is trustworthy. He's faithful. So everything's channeled into winning the war, and it's easy to lose this sense of urgency. So fight the good fight, he says. I have fought the good fight. He has not lost this perspective that I've been in wartime this whole time. And it, it was probably more in his face, because he got stoned, he got... <laughs> He ultimately got beheaded. You know, Paul faced all of these things in a very tangible way. But he knew his fight wasn't with them. It wasn't with his persecutors. It was with powers. All right, the final mark of fighting the fight is living with my eyes and heart on the reality of the second coming of Jesus. He uses this phrase, all those that love his appearing. So I'm, I'm with those Count me in. I'm one of those. Put that on my name badge right here. I'm one of those who loves his appearing. You got that name badge too? I love his appearing. So this was the activity Paul was focused on as he neared his end. But why tell Timothy this when Timothy still has a lot more years to live? Why tell Timothy to look forward to the coming of Jesus? Well, this can be likened to the joy that was set before Jesus, the glory that awaits those who love Christ's appearing is something not only to treasure, but it holds our attention. It holds our attention. In fact, I often think about the position uh, statements in Ephesians that we are seated with Christ. So if we go there, if we... We, we become part of that realm in our minds and our hearts. We can actually look down and see that coming of Jesus happening. We can see with him from that throne, from that right hand of the Father, all that's about to happen. And that just changes your perspective on everything. <laughs> Looking at his coming with this kind of expectation just changes our perspective on so many things. It will keep you from stumbling and error more than you might realize, right? It just keeps you right locked into where we need to be. So trials, suffering, justice, they all begin to find solution and explanation in this reality. So I hear all this argument going around us, social justice and and, uh, arguments that are politically biased and all of these. All of these find solution in that in that glory that's coming, right? So I filter all of those things. And I, I, I recall Paul telling Timothy not to engage in certain arguments. I think this is why. This is why a lot of the arguments are futile. They're useless. is because when you wash them through the kingdom and all that's about to happen, they really don't matter that much. They find their solution for sure in eternity. <laughs> They, they just all of a sudden get new perspective. So our prayers become those that take hold of glorification. Our prayers become those that take hold of glorification and pull it into the present, right? Every time we're engaged in prayer, we, we grab hold of that glory that's awaiting us. We pull it here. We pull it here. And in the fight for our faith, nothing will counter the downward pull of this age and the scheme of the enemy, like hope in the victory of Christ that has already begun. So the mark of a life well lived is perseverance and growth of faith. 
think we've expounded. What is keeping of the faith? So the second point is, is kind of res, uh, recapturing some of those points, that keeping the faith requires warfare and persistence. Keeping the faith requires running a race and fighting a fight. Fighting a fight is how we keep the faith. Fighting the fight means there's opposition. Running a race means it won't be won quickly. Running a race feels very much like fighting a fight sometimes. I've never run the distance that Pastor Matthew has. I think the longest one I've done was a 10K called the Pepsi Challenge. Uh, I ran a lot in my younger teen uh, epic. I was never a fast sprinter, but I could run long distances. So I did a lot of 5K, you know, uh, and 10K. But I remember in some some of those races, you learn what to do and not not to do. One of my first 5K, you know, I had regular breakfast with a lot of orange juice, and about three quarters of the way through, you know, you see all that come up again. You know, you just, it's like, yeah, that was a bad idea. And, and you learn all, along the way how to train better, you know, how to get my muscles in shape, how to build up my lungs, all of those things. And, and Paul talks a little bit about, about that, the training that takes place as an athlete. So we know it's not going to be a quick thing. And we know it's like a rehearsal that all of these things are building up until that final glorification when I'm ready. When the wedding actually happens, everything goes as, as planned, right? And although there, there's descriptions of crowns and rewards and all those things, I know you see it this way, but he is my reward. He is my reward. And all, all of this keeping the faith and all of this running a race, that is a reward for him. That will actually get, come together as a crown and be placed on Jesus. All the righteousness of the saints and all of their keeping in the faith and abiding in him, that will solidify into a crown placed on Jesus' head. He will be rewarded for his faithfulness with our faithfulness. Hallelujah. So Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11, I'm going to close with this. We desire each one of you to know the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish. Sounds like he's talking about a race. But imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hallelujah. You may have the full assurance of hope. What is faith? It's the assurance of things hoped for. Assurance. Faith is not something I generate. It's the result of hearing. It's a result of being abiding in him. I'm not holding on to the faith as if it's a title. Uh, you know, I haven't denied being a Christian. That's not what it's talking about. That's not keeping the faith. Keeping the faith is staying and abiding and dwelling in the faithfulness of Christ, right? <laughs> and so many times we, we have mistranslated like having faith in Christ. Actually, there's several Bible scholars that open that up to us. That, that the meaning of that phrase that Paul often used, faith in Christ, means being found in the faithfulness of Christ. So he was, he was faithful in all things. If, if I just get myself in his wheelbarrow, so to speak, and let his faithfulness carry me, then I, I do have faith. I am strengthened in faith. And I can trust him for anything in my life. And that also combats and is useful to me in wartime to resist the enemy. So why don't we stand together? You know, as we're running... As we're fighting, Hebrews says we have this cloud of witnesses before us and Jesus before us, but oftentimes in the body we look beside us and we see people struggling. So we bear one another's burdens and we help one another in this race and in this fight. So if you do need prayer, I'm available. We have prayer team here. Just 
come up after we're done. We'll, we'll pray and stand with you. Um, we want you to find faith in all, in all those things. If your faith is being rocked, if, if it's weakened and not focused where it needs to be focused, let us stand with you and, and agree with you to find that focus again. Father, we just, uh, we just adore you. We love you. Yes. We thank you for your faithfulness that endured to the end. We thank you for even the example of the, the Apostle Paul, Lord, in writing to his, his uh, disciple, Timothy. Father, that it is possible for us, Lord, to uh, find endurance and find perseverance and trust you day to day, Father. Lord, I, I just speak this intensity and this, uh, this anointing to be able to pursue you, this desire that comes like uh, uh, very supernaturally into our heart and mind each and every day, Lord, to want the things that are of you, that we, we train uh, our bodies and our minds, Lord, that that is our first recourse, that we seek First, the kingdom. We just desire eyes that see kingdoms. We, see, we want ears that see kingdom on and hear the things that you're, you're saying to us, Father. So we just trust you for these things, Lord. We, we, we yield ourselves. We sign over everything that has been held back to you again, Father. And I, and I know you are revealing to us by your revelation and wisdom each day. Where, where are those uh, remaining enemies in this Canaan, in this Canaan that need to look more like Jerusalem, Father? So we ask you, Lord, to spy out the land. It says, search my heart, Father. We just ask you to spy out the land. Would you find those remaining uh, high hills where those, uh, the, those enemies are still uh, uh, beating us up, Father? They're, they're inflicting us. Father, maybe uh, past wounds or brokenness, Father. We just desire you seek him out. You would bring those, Lord, in such a powerful way uh, to experience the revelation of the love of Christ who has given us the victor, Lord. We just entrust all these things to you in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.